0: Financial residency podcasts are brought to you this week by WeatherbyHealthcare.com. Just as the right advice helps you thrive financially, the right support team allows you to excel professionally. Weatherby Healthcare's Locums experts will match you with the best jobs, prepare you for success, and provide 24 7 support. The bottom line is that working Locums with Weatherby helps you earn more money and take better control of your career. If that sounds like music to your ears, Head over to com slash payday to get started.
1: Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Kraus explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy
0: at T-A-M-M-Y at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. We always have questions coming up surrounding malpractice insurance, whether it be just trying to understand the different types that are available, figuring out, you know, what's needed if you're a 1099 or a locums employee, um, or trying to navigate tail insurance when you're getting ready to leave a job. So today I was lucky enough to have Brian Kern with Acadia Professional join me here and kind of walk us through some of these issues. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Tommy. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate
0: it. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. There, Yeah, this is just a mystery. <laughs> We're not taught these things in residency, you know, how to navigate this world. So thanks for helping us out.
1: Everyone loves conversations about medical malpractice insurance, so I'm Uh, so happy we can do (laughs) this.
0: Always (laughs) stimulating. (laughs) Well, let's start out. Can you just tell us a little bit about you, how you came to join the MedMal world?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So out of college, I actually wanted to be a healthcare attorney and decided not to go straight to law school and ended up taking a job selling insurance. And I really just liked the medical malpractice space. It seemed related to healthcare. It seemed interesting. So I ended up taking a job, which was really a local insurance agency at the time, but they were just starting to develop this niche in medical malpractice. So the timing was serendipitous, really. Started working for the agency and was there about seven seven months. During that time, I applied to law school at night and ended up Going in parallel routes, so I stayed with the medical malpractice insurance brokerage, learning that whole business, and you know, learning a lot about medical malpractice in general. In addition to med mal insurance, ended up graduating night law program at Seton Hall Law School in New Jersey, and I did go all the way through and take the bar or pass the bar, and was still thinking about becoming a healthcare attorney at that time, but ended up deciding against it. And one of my partners in that firm and I ended up leaving the, which was kind of a general insurance agency, but taking all the MedMal out and starting a new agency, very specific to MedMal. And since then really have focused on that with some additional focuses. We do quite a bit in value-based care now, work with a lot of healthcare attorneys in different capacities which has led us to understand MedMail from all kinds of levels. There's a lot going on with physicians coming together, be it from the private equity space, trying to come in and create more efficient enterprises to health systems, consolidating physicians and bringing them under their umbrella to just independent doctors trying to work together to stay independent under an IPA, Independent Physician Association structure. So we've seen it all and there are so many different issues with liability when these different models come together that having a law degree is great, but also just being able to have this focus just in healthcare and medical malpractice has been really important to be able to counsel these, what can be really major transactions with huge legal teams on every side, bringing together, you know, a lot of money and a lot of patients and Working through the weeds on issues such as liability.
0: I was kind of reading through your bio, and it sounds like, I mean, you've been a speaker to other attorneys, a speaker to physicians, kind of a thought leader in the space. So I'm just, yeah, thrilled to have you on the show today. Thanks. Thought we'd kind of just start from the beginning. You know, I was thinking back in residency, everything's just taken care of for you. You walk in the door, they kind of help you set up your license, they've got your insurance taken care of, and you just are a doctor. But once you leave that safe space and you go out into practice, all of these things are thrown at you, but we're not really trained in how to you know, navigate that space. So where do you start on day one as far as figuring out what you need for insurance?
1: It's such a great question. And it's so important because coming out of training, it's not just the insurance. It's literally if you go to join another practice, you get an employment agreement. And there's so much to that. Obviously, we're focusing just on medical malpractice insurance, but it, I guess, is the minority of physicians who hire a lawyer and help them walk through all the provisions. They'll hand it to a family member, they'll hand the agreement to a family member, they'll look at it themselves and say, This looks pretty good. And for the most part, it probably is pretty good. Where we run into the most complexity, Related to medical malpractice insurance is when it comes to the type of coverage being offered, because there are two main types of coverage and everyone, most people at least know these names, but they don't always know exactly what they mean. Occurrence and claims made. Occurrence just means you are covered for everything that occurred during the time that you had your policy in force. That's the gold standard. That's what everyone would likely prefer if they had the opportunity, but it's more expensive, expensive up front. And moreover, it's unavailable in a lot of states. But if you have occurrence, you're forever covered for everything that occurred under that policy. The much more common one throughout the country is called claims made. The catch there is that you are only covered when the claim is actually made. So you might treat a patient in 2020, and be on an active medical malpractice insurance policy, but the patient doesn't find out anything went wrong. By the time they do, it's 2021. By the time they get a lawyer, get experts, figure out whether it's worth bringing this lawsuit or not, it's two years later. The physician might be with another carrier, may not have insurance at all anymore. maybe be with the same group, a different group, but that's the whole problem, right? Coverage responds when the claim is actually made, so it can become problematic if you don't know how to address the claims made policy all throughout the term of the policy or even the term of your employment. Claims made coverage is also sold as a discount for that same reason, because when you first get policy, it's very unlikely that you're going to actually do something and be sued for it in that first policy year. So it starts out at a discount of roughly 33%, and then it's discounted roughly 45%, and then 20%, and then 10%. And then ultimately it gets right around the cost of an occurrence policy. But remember it's a temporary policy. So at any time, if you switch coverage, you have to be mindful of when you started on your claims made policy. That starting date is known as your retroactive date, and that is the most important date to remember right after your anniversary and birthday as you go through your career because you always need to make sure you're covered back to your retroactive date.
0: Okay. Now, if you have a claims made type policy and you do move on to a new practice, if I'm not mistaken, that's when your tail insurance becomes key. Is that correct?
1: Yep. So you're tracking this very nicely. So now you leave your policy. Let's say you leave one group to join another group. There's two things you can do. You can ask the new group to pick up your prior acts. So when you do that, you say, can you pick up my prior acts back to my retroactive date? I need to make sure it covers you all the way back to the beginning so you don't have any gap in coverage.
0: Okay.
1: The second option is the new group group says, look, we will cover you going forward, but we don't want to cover you retroactively. We want you to handle that separately. So the only way to turn that claim it's made policy, temporary policy into permanent policy, kind of like an occurrence policy is to buy what's called a tail. Like you said, that tail can be pretty expensive. It could be two times premium. And maybe it's not a huge deal if you are in the primary care world. If you're an OBGYN and you're paying $100,000 a year for your insurance and it's a $200,000 tail, suddenly it becomes a big problem. And that's why I think if you're joining a practice, one, you should review your contract, particularly for the language related to the insurance. But employers should, whether they're going to buy the tail or not, at least explain to physicians coming on how that is all going to work. What we see oftentimes is, all right, we're going to, we're going to put a lot of money out for this young physician coming into our practice. If you stay on for only one year, you're responsible for your own tail. But after two years, we'll pay 20%. After three years, we'll pay 40, 60, 80, 100. You know, if you're here six years, we'll take responsibility for your tail. Every relationship, every arrangement is a little bit different. Those are the ways that we see employers working with employees, but some employers might say, we, we just don't cover tails, but still tell them upfront. So they understand what they can and should do once the physicians leave. Most of the time, doctors are going to be able to find a new company to pick up their prior acts, which means they won't have to buy a tail, but at least they know that going in. And it's not a surprise where they come and say, I found a new position. And then all of a sudden they're stuck with this huge tail. Now, if the new employer comes back and says, we will not offer prior acts on our coverage, so you have to tell out mm-hmm. oftentimes that new employer will contribute towards the tail because they understand the program that they have in place is making this move difficult and Being a physician now is generally better than trying to be an employer and hiring because of the physician's shortage. So the new employer will tend to work with the employee, even if they're not going to cover prior acts, to offset the cost of that tail somehow.
0: Okay. Yeah, I know when I took a different job, I negotiated with my new employer and they paid 100% of my tail, which was huge, you know.
1: There you go. Yeah, perfect.
0: A question that comes up pretty frequently, and I don't know if everybody had the same experience as I did, but I'll just ask this in a general way. If you know you're getting ready to leave your position and you're going to have to have tail or, you know, say you don't have the prior acts coming with your new employer, how would you find out how much that is going to be? Is there a way to do that without alerting your previous employer that you're thinking about leaving?
1: Yes, that's a good question. So (laughs) I had to alert my employer to get the answer. (laughs) Yeah, right. So sometimes there's roundabout ways. Most medical malpractice insurance companies file for what's called admitted status in each state. So I'm in New Jersey. When a new company comes into New Jersey, the only way they can become admitted is to submit their entire underwriting manual. To the state of new jersey and this is true of almost every single state okay and then the state reviews the entire manual ratings pricing tells everything and says and decides whether or not they're going to be approved as an admitted company almost every state prohibits physicians from going to a non-admitted company unless certain terms have been satisfied so it's Very difficult to operate as a non-admitted medical malpractice insurance company. Mm -hmm. Huge burden to become admitted. But once they're admitted, they're in, they can operate, but they are subjected to their own rules that they created for themselves that the insurance department is now overseeing. So within that manual will be the tail factors. So if you know what your premium is, you can probably find out what your tail cost is going to be. Sometimes you might not even know what your premium is, though, if you're just covered under the group policy. So not a perfect solution because you might not know what company you're with. You might not know what year claims made you're in. You might not know what your premium is. I mean, you can even call an independent broker and say, I'm with this group now. I might be joining another group, in which case I'm not going to hire for you. But if I don't, then maybe we could work together. If you could help me out a little bit here. I know I'm insured with this company. I've been here for two years. I'm a family physician. Can you give me an idea of what I'm looking at for a tail cost? Okay. And kind of back into it that way. But yeah, you're not alone in sometimes being lost in the woods when you want to consider switching jobs and not knowing how much your tail might cost.
0: Yeah, it definitely impacts whether or not it's feasible to actually leave a job if the new employer is not going to help you out in that world or that realm.
1: Exactly.
0: Now, what if you're either going to become 1099 or locums or maybe open your own practice? How would you know what type of insurance would be the best one for you to get?
1: So you should most likely in most scenarios try to get an occurrence policy. But again, a lot of states don't even give the option to have occurrence coverage. So if you're going to be a 1099 employee, if you're going to, well, if you're going to be a 1099 employee, you you probably have to have your own insurance. And it's the same kind of analysis. You're going to get this early claims made policy. It's going to be sold at a discount, but you're going to be responsible for your tail one day. So just keep that in mind. There's no reason why you can't get your projected costs for the policy for five years, as well as the tail costs right next to it. Yes, premiums can go up or down based on claim history, based on a company increasing or decreasing rates, but if it's an admitted carrier, any rate increase or decrease also has to be filed with the insurance department. So that happens frequently, but not to generally not to an extreme amount because they need insurance department approval anyway. So you should have a pretty good idea of what you would pay both in premium and then what you would have to pay in tail over at least a five-year period. So you should go through that process. When it comes to locums, this is a really touchy area because we tend to be conservative about this because we've seen so many companies go out of business, but oftentimes an employer who wants to bring locums on will set up a, what's called a slot policy where as many physicians as they bring on at any given time can provide services, can read images, can conduct telemedicine, can see patients, all of these things. And the company, the employer will pay the insurance company based on the total number of physicians working, based on the hours, based on the, the procedures or reads or whatever it is they're providing. And they'll just be that cumulative cost for that slot that, that these doctors are collectively taking up. The problem is locums are told, this is different than an employee signing an agreement that says you're responsible for your own tail. What these agreements say is we will cover you while you're working here. If the locum tenant position leaves, that coverage remains in place. So, from that standpoint, they have nothing to worry about. The problem occurs when the company itself, the employer itself, goes out of business because then that policy, that claims made policy goes away. And that employer is stuck with the choice between buying a tail with money they most likely don't have or losing all of their coverage. When the master policy goes away, everyone who's ever provided locum tenants coverage is without coverage at that point Back are they the notified of
0: that
1: it depends sometimes as part of bankruptcy or liquidation proceeding they're going to be notified and that's when we tend to work with companies like that because we typically won't set up those policies for startup companies because it doesn't really help anybody and if you think about it it's really just setting these companies up for a massive tail cost down the road that they're probably not going to be able to afford. So if they don't have the funding to set up policies early on and cover the physicians, you know, either on their own part-time basis or be able to structure these things up front where they're not setting themselves up for a precarious situation down the road, they're probably going to have a hard time dealing with it down the road. So we tend to not, work with companies like that. And unfortunately, we end up working with a lot of physicians who were there and now need to figure out how to buy tails for themselves on a standalone basis, which is expensive.
0: I'm and, sure. and we don't
1: like doing it. I've actually written a couple of articles on this. There was a few larger bankruptcies. One was a hospital in Philadelphia. Another was a teleradiology radiology company. Yeah. And that's when we ended up getting calls. One was a former client really nice woman radiologist who did just a few reads for this teleradiology company and was being charged like somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000 to protect herself from a potential lawsuit. We ended up saving her a lot of money by quoting, by getting her tail coverage elsewhere, but still she had to reach into her pocket and basically pay more money for a tail than she ever made providing your services and that's all right
0: no oh that's scary i hadn't even thought about that aspect of it you know
1: yeah so the solution there would be if you do want to entertain a relationship like that do it on a 1099 basis get your own coverage just get paid for the services that you're providing and then you can manage your own policy that makes
0: sense What about if you're going to start a new practice and, you know, whether you're a single provider or whether you have multiple people with you, that sounds like a daunting thing to take on. But do you work with a lot of those type clients too?
1: All the time. And there are ways where practices that are going through the growth stages Mm -hmm. can reduce cost. Once you're working full time as a physician. You should be able to pay for your mental practice insurance. I get that it's a little more challenging for an OBGYN and a neurosurgeon, but, you know, for, for most specialists, once you're seeing patients 40 plus out or zoo. Most companies will offer part-time discounts, though, which helps quite a bit. If your base premium is $20,000, then your part-time premium at 20 hours or less might be $10,000. So that's a good way to save money upfront until you're working full-time and you can space the payments out over the course of a month. And some companies will even offer you a 75% discount if you're working 10 hours or less. So works for the sole member, but also is very helpful when you're bringing physicians on. A new have to get the. And credentialed have to go through that whole process takes time revenue might not be coming in forget about submitting claims and having to sit there and wait for the payers to finally pay you so maybe you start the employee on a part-time basis when they first come on another benefit that most insurance companies provide is when you first hire an employee if they're right out of training or coming into private practice for the very first time they'll discount that as well so You might get a 75% discount when you first come out of trading. So that $20,000 is only $5,000 that first year. So there's there's a lot of those types of options that can help offset some of those costs early on.
0: Sounds like it really matters who you talk to. So finding that knowledgeable broker like yourself is probably the most important thing that you can do. You said it. Now, do you work with clients nationwide? Are you focused in a state or a region?
1: We are not licensed in all 50 states, but we're licensed in about 20. Most of our clients are in New York, New Jersey, but we do work with a lot of physicians in Maryland, D.C., Virginia, Texas, California, Tennessee, Florida. So we're always happy to get licensed in new states if the opportunities take us there. But we keep growing, so we're in roughly 20 states.
0: That's fantastic. If someone wanted to get in touch with you to ask questions, see if you could help them out, how would they find you, Brian?
1: So they can always email me at bkern at Acadia dot pro. They write dot com. They're not going to get me. It's bkern that- at Acadia dot pro. K-E-R-N? Our, yep. B-K-E-R-N at A-C-A-D-I-A dot P-R-O. And then www.acadia.pro is our website. And we write a lot about issues going on in the professional liability space. And there's a lot more detail about our company and our team on our site.
0: Yeah, I think when we talked, you were saying there are a lot of ways to actually mitigate risk and maybe lower your malpractice premiums by doing that. And that's kind of a new focus that you've had.
1: Yeah. So we have always been very, Big on risk management, but part of the problem with risk management is there's rarely an immediate return on investment. It's do this now and avoid a, and potentially avoid a lawsuit down the road. Physicians have so much on their plate that to ask them to overhaul their practice in a big way, potentially for an exchange of a five percent discount of a 10 percent discount. It's a tough, It's tough to convince them to do it oftentimes. We have put a lot of effort into learning how to ensure downside risk in value-based care contracts. And um, as part of that, have learned that physicians who embrace value-based care, the data analytic components, the care coordination components, the risk stratification components, the post-acute care components inherently reduced reduce medical professional liability risk. But rather than consider a 5% discount on their malpractice insurance, they think about value-based care in terms of we can make a lot more revenue by getting involved in value-based care contracts because we're helping our patients navigate the health system and reduce costs while they do it. Those reductions in costs get shared amongst the physicians and could be the payers or the other partners involved. So could be significantly more upside revenue for the physicians to undergo these types of risk management procedures or practices, such as closing care gaps, coordinating care for patients throughout, whether it's a population health journey or an episode of care. We're starting to see A lot of synergies between the value-based care space and the medical malpractice risk management space.
0: You sound like a good person to have on the team. (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) Jairus. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and I hope to have you back at a later date too. Is there anything I should have asked you about today that I didn't?
1: not off the top of my head, but I appreciate the opportunity to be on. And if you come up with more questions relating to MedMal, we're happy to answer them. Like I guess the one other pitfall that we see way too often, and it's such an easy fix because if it's generally free, Mm -hmm. is to just make sure all of the entities that you have are named as additional insurance on your policy. You may merge a couple of practices together. You may have created a separate billing entity for the pain side of your anesthesia practice, whatever the case may be, always make sure all those entities are named on your policy
0: because the insurance companies
1: will usually do it for free. Yeah. If they're not named and they're named, if they're not named on your policy and they're named in a lawsuit, you're not going to have any coverage. And then you have to go hire a lawyer for what would have been a free addition to your policy.
0: Good advice. Yeah. I'm sure it's easy to overlook all of those things that come up, you know, over the 20 years that you're practicing and not realize that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Good. Thanks. We love free things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go.
0: Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And thanks to everyone for tuning in to this week's edition of Grand Rounds. I hope you'll join me again next week. If you're ready to start boosting your earning power with locums, Head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com slash payday to learn more.